please pray with me and also for me. Lord, I'm grateful for your word and your promise to give wisdom to those that ask. And so I ask, would you make us wise? I pray especially for your help as I preach this morning and that you would stir up within each one of us a desire to be holy before you and give us the self-discipline to get there. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So printed in your bulletin is the, the verse of the week, our memory verse, which is actually not part of the reading that Jack just read for us. So we're going we're gonna to try, as we've been doing, try to remember this, and I'll explain why I picked this one. It's short, pithy, fairly graphic, and hopefully, because of that, it will, it will come quickly back to your mind when you most need it, which is in the moment when you fail. Okay, so it's on the screen here, and we're going to say it, and we'll say the reference after it. So repeat after me, or join with me. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a... Proverbs 26, 11. Okay, now take that away, and let's try and say it again. Ready? Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Proverbs 26, 11. Okay, well done. Um, so, I picked that verse because it has to do with choosing discipline over desire. I mean, think about what a dog does. The reason he throws up is something is sour in his stomach. Something is bad for him, and his body has cast it out. But being the, the creature of habit that he is, as dogs like foul-smelling things, he goes right back and he eats it again, which, of course, defeats the purpose of having cast it out in the first place. And when we refuse to learn the lessons of wisdom, we are just like that. We make a mistake, and then rather than learn, we just go back and we keep doing the same stupid thing because we have failed to learn the lesson of wisdom. And so Proverbs is entirely about making the wise choices and choosing to walk wisely in a fool's world. And sometimes that means messing up and realizing you've messed up and actually repenting of it and then starting to change your habits and behaviors. So as we get into Proverbs, we have to remember it's a picture of how the wor world works or should work, and then how to walk wisely through it. So first of all, we recognize that God has created everything. And right away, that means that there is a, there is a moral order to the world, to the universe. There is right and wrong written straight into the fabric of creation. There are actually absolutes. There is absolute truth. It's not all relative, despite what our Western society wants to say because God, the one who created it, set it up a certain way, and it will work in a certain way. But it doesn't always work in that way, which is where people have problems with Proverbs, because they read it and they think, well, you know, the one that says, uh, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. Well, you know people, and maybe you're one of them, who was brought up in the faith, and as an adult, walked away from it. And you say, well, see, the Proverbs aren't true. They don't work. Well, they actually are true, and their observations of what usually happens, but because God's good creation is broken, there are anomalies, there are exceptions, there are things that happen that don't line up with what God's will is. He's permissive in that way, and he allows these things to happen. So God created everything with, everything with a moral order and told us what is good, and the world is broken, and so the Proverbs are usually true, but not always, and this causes a problem. And if you go at the Proverbs, either with the two um, polar ends of legalism, rule following, or license, no rules, you get in trouble. 
If you don't do any rules and you just live the way you want, then you suffer the consequences that are described in the book of Proverbs. And if you go in thinking, I'm going to make a whole bunch of rules and be like the Pharisees and just follow all the rules, then my life will work out well. But it doesn't. You, don't, you raise your kids in the faith and some of them wander. And you are generous and sometimes you do experience want and you don't get the blessing you thought you would get. And there are all these different things that happen because we're in a broken world. And so you need a third thing. Not only did God create everything and created it good, and it's broken, but he sent his son to redeem it. And so the kingdom of God is being, it's breaking into this world and it's fixing and healing things. And so we have to keep all that in perspective when we come to this wisdom writing. Now today, it's about understanding desire and the benefits of self-discipline. As verse 12 says this, the fool the, the son of Solomon that did not take his father's advice is a fool, and he says, oh, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to my teachers. Now, this is at the end of his life. He just kept returning to the vomit, so to speak, and doing the same thing over and over and over again, and he just, he hated self-discipline, and so he suffered as a result of it. Now, chapter 5, in particular, is talking about sexual sin. It's talking about sexuality here. And I want to point out that this is far from the worst sin, if we were to put them on a scale of, like, badness. So, I mean, even the gospel reading today, do you think Jesus was more um, upset with the adulteress or the prideful religious leaders that dragged her and wanted bloodlust and they wanted to stone her right there? If you look at how Jesus responded, it was the self-righteous Pharisees and the religious types and the people that thought they were good, but were being wicked, that he said the worst things against. And the woman, it was a double standard. If you're going to follow Moses' law, both the man and the woman were supposed to be stoned, and they only brought the woman. Why is that? I have to wonder if the man was one of their own friends. There was a huge double standard, and Jesus, he didn't make light of her sin, but he, he didn't condemn her, and he said, go and sin no more. But then he also pointed out that everyone holding a stone, you're sinners as well. Now, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote Mere Christianity, said uh, on the very topic of the gradient of how bad sins are, he said the self-righteous prig who regularly goes to church can be far closer to hell than the prostitute. But let's not be either, right? So he's pointing out that just sexual sin is not the only problem here. There's lots of sins that have to be dealt with. In fact, in the next chapter, there are seven things that God hates, and sexual immorality is not listed. It says this, and this is Proverbs 6, uh, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. It doesn't even list adultery or sexual immorality on the list of seven things that God hates. So on the front end, I want to say, just it's not the worst sin ever. So why cover it, you ask? Well, Proverbs gives it significant attention. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 are primarily dealing with sexual immorality, and there are random Proverbs that are scattered throughout the rest of the book that also address the topic. And maybe more importantly, 
you and I are suffering a near constant barrage of false propaganda about it. I asked my family this week if they could name any book, a novel, movie, TV show that had two people that had sexual attraction that consciously chose abstinence instead of acting on it. Not that they couldn't do it because people were there, they couldn't get alone or whatever. They were in a place and they went, this isn't right. We, we couldn't, I could think of one and it was kind of a Christian movie, but we couldn't think of examples. You can give me scores and scores of movie where somebody has a desire and before the next scene is out, they're naked. I mean, this is, this is everywhere and this is in novels as well as TV. It's, we're constantly being a hit with a, a message of, if it feels good, do it, whatever goes. And so I feel like the church needs to speak a good word in response to that, good news. And this applies to you if you're a grandparent, if you're a widow or a widower, if you're single, if you're a student, because there's something much bigger at play here. This is affecting the whole community. And I want you to see from God's perspective how to view this topic. Now also, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, the church and the Bible are super clear on the topic and have been for forever, for 2,000 years. And he says this, here's your options. Either marriage with complete faithfulness to your spouse or else total abstinence. Those are the boundaries for sex. That's it. And, and yet, um, our, our instincts seem to go so against that teaching. Why? Well, C.S. Lewis gives us a list of things. One, our appetites have gone amiss. They're off. They are warped. And there's a devil who is tempting us in the area of desire and putting ideas into our minds and causing things to happen because he wants us to fail and to fall. And then I mentioned all the propaganda, so you're being told constantly to just do it, go after it, whatever you want. And then on top of that, we think abstinence is impossible. Not that we've really tried it, but we think this can't happen, this is impossible. And I want to just insert a word of praise to anyone in here who actually has proved otherwise. You have resisted the cultural drive saying you've got to have it and you are choosing abstinence because I know you get pressure because everybody else is doing it and they want you to do it. If that's you, well done. I want you to hear this in church. You have done well to withstand the pressures. It's hard. And if you've messed up, I also want you to hear this. There's forgiveness and you can start over right now today and God will help you. Remember, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you and dwells within you, and he's on your side trying to help you. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. So God is the one who gave sex to fulfill marriage and to symbolize Christ's love for the world. Now, the prayer book talks about the purpose for marriage and, and fulfilling marriage. The purpose is to make children, to have mutual joy, to avoid sexual temptation. Marriage actually is God's chosen outlet to help you be pure by having the correct place for those desires. And then it's also a benefit to all of society because through marriage, you have two people caring for one another and then it builds a family that cares for one another and then families care for families and then neighborhoods care for cities and cities care for the country and it's like, it is the, it's the building block of society for mutual self-love and care, marriages. So God designed all this and put this in place. Into that now, Solomon speaks. So look at this. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion, 
that your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood. Now the word here, forbidden, has a footnote, and it says in Hebrew it's strange or foreign. Don't think like an alien that's not a citizen of the country. Think alien or foreign or strange to God's design intention for creating you in the first place. She's the forbidden woman because this is not God's design and it will bring harm. Now the Bible speaks in blushing language about the goodness of sex and the gift it is for marriage. And when you read through, I didn't, I didn't have the whole chapter read, but if you read verses 15 down through 19, you see sexual innuendo all through it. In fact, that, even that verse 3 about the lips of a forbidden woman, they're speaking in innuendo. You read the Song of Solomon. It is referring to erotic sexual contact. And the early church was scandalized by this, and they made it all allegorical. No, no, it's not really about actual sex. It's about passionate faith in Jesus and his love for the church. Wrong. It's actually talking about the gift of sex that God invented. God invented it as a gift for marriage and also to point us to the love that Christ has for his church. So it's both. And, it, and the Bible is, it uses this language, and it's like we're, we're afraid. Like we're, we're, it does make us blush a bit that it could be that good, and, it's, and it celebrates it as a good thing. Now, the adulteress, the forbidden woman, and by the way, if you're a woman, you need to flip this around and think of maybe like the cultural term, a man who's just playing the field, somebody who's just in it for the sex, who's not actually giving love, and you have, to, you have to change the genders around. And remember, this is Solomon talking to sons to raise them up for the royal court. But it's in the Bible because it's wisdom for all of us. So just reverse the genders and think about how it plays out from a male perspective or from a female perspective. But one of the problems is it's been turned into mere appetite. We expect far less from sex than actually God intends. And listen to one of the other Proverbs. This is Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 30, verse 20 speaking about the forbidden woman, says this, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Like, like just wiping the ketchup off my mouth. I got hungry, I had a hamburger. I had a desire, I satisfied it, period. I've done no wrong. And it, it's turned something beautiful into something just bodily. It's made it a transaction. It's stolen the goodness and the beauty out of it. And what Solomon wants us to know is there are consequences, bad ones. So you look at what it says in, in uh, verse 9. If you, if you go near the door of the wayward person, you will give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Strangers will take their fill of your strength. Your labors will go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you'll say, oh, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. You want a good picture of what that looks like? Read the story of the judge Samson from the Old Testament in Judges. Samson was awesome. He was super strong. He was called to lead Israel, but he had this problem. He hated self-discipline and control, and he chose a woman that was not from his country, who was an adulteress. Her name was Delilah, and he just had this, he was just so turned on for her that he lost everything. He ends up having his strength taken, he has his eyes gouged out, and he ends up committing suicide in a last act of desperation to fight against the enemy. It's such a picture of what is lost if you fail to honor God's ways. Now, here's an interesting thing about this topic. There's a pendulum 
and sexuality, and somehow our culture has managed to be at both ends at the same time. On the one hand, we've swung the pendulum out this far that we completely undervalue it and make it a mere bodily transaction. It's just an appetite that's being appeased. But on the other side, we have made it so ultimate that we worship it and give it godlike status. Sex is all-consuming, and it's like obsessive in our culture. We are a, a sex-crazed culture. And at the same time, the pendulum's on both ends, which you can't have. We've got to bring that back down to the middle. It's a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. And it's not just about needs and a body and cravings. There's so much more going on. And many of you that are actually practicing abstinence and, and walking in a holy way are doing it because you've seen your friends break the rules of God and suffer great harm. And it's not just bodily harm. It's emotional harm. It's depression. It's a, a, a feeling of being abused or hurt. Somebody took something from you and you thought it was just an exchange and you realized you gave them a part of your heart and not just your body. All this stuff is at play here. There's a lot going on. So in our culture, you know, what does it look like? Maybe paying child support, um, running from a jealous husband or a boyfriend, um, others' disapproval, even a potential boyfriend or girlfriend that would want to date you realizes how lacking in self-control you are and they know about those other liaisons and so they, they don't want anything to do with you. That's part of the consequences of not having self-control and of course disease and all that other stuff. And so Christ's love for the church becomes an important picture for us. When we think of sexual union not just as a bodily thing but as a complete giving and receiving of persons, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And he gave his body for it. He gave himself up for his bride, the church. And he says that, he, Paul quotes um, Genesis and says, uh, it, regarding marriage, a man will leave his father and mother and become, cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And he says, this is a great mystery and it points to Christ and his love for the church. Because it's, it's, it's a complete giving. It's not just body, it's heart, soul, mind, everything. Well, how did Jesus love us? Well, he didn't do it remotely. He didn't do it just partially. He went all the way to the cross. He emptied himself of glory. He entered into our problems, our pain. He took that upon himself, and he gave himself till death do us part. Like he went all the way to death out of love. It was a complete self-giving. And Paul is saying the picture of sex as God designed it should not only bless the marriage, but it should point us to God and his goodness. So if you're in a place in life right now where this is not possible for you, you're not married, don't despair. Let the topic point you to God's goodness. And also remember this, even if you are married, it can't ultimately satisfy you. As good as it is, it can't ultimately satisfy you. And if you make it out to be that, it's idolatrous. What can satisfy you is Jesus ultimately. He's the one that can satisfy you. His love for you never ends. There is no end to it. It goes beyond the grave. And so he has more for you, not less. Now the fool, at, at the end of this, it says, um, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, gets caught in a snare and a trap, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin, and he dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. So what does this discipline look like in this topic? Well, one, if you're married, it's keeping the marriage bed pure, as Hebrew says. If you're not, it's upholding abstinence. And the wise person learns and grows. And again, the Holy Spirit's helping you. 
So like the dog that returns to his vomit, don't do that. Learn from your mistakes and start to change. Now this is where self-control and discipline comes in, and I want to be highly practical on this. I've told you about Dallas Willard before. He has a simple acronym of three things that need to be in place if you're going to build a new habit in your life. And by the way, if sex isn't your problem, eating might be, or greed might be, or anything you need self-control in, this applies. It's V-I-M, vision, intention, and means. V-I-M. First of all, you have a vision of being a kind of person who does or doesn't do a certain thing. And we're looking at a picture here of a holy marriage or abstaining from sex. That's God's image for you. And first of all, you have to get that picture, and you have to agree that, okay, God invented this. I better pay attention to his rules or people will get hurt, myself included. So I start to have a vision. I want to be a holy person in regard to this. That's not enough, though. Then you have to intend to act, actually do it. So you, you guys know the name Augustine, St. Augustine of the early church. He was one of the great theologians of the church. And he famously had a real problem with promiscuity. Women were, for him, an Achilles heel. He had all kinds of illicit relationships and whatever, but he was, had become a Christian. And he started to pray. And he prayed, God, make me chaste. And then he admitted later that there was an echo to that prayer in his heart that he hadn't said, God, make me chaste, but just not yet. He, he had the vision of being holy, but he didn't have the intention of going there yet. So you need the vision of it, and then you need the intention, I, it, which is a, an act of will. I want this thing. I'm choosing it. But even that's not enough. You need one more thing, and that's the M, means. Vision, intention, and means. And so the means are the things you actually can do, that you have in your power now to do, that can help you do the thing that feels like it's out of control. So let me use a different example instead of sex. Let me use um, junk food. Um, I used this illustration, and someone came and confessed to me in the Narthex after the early service about M&Ms, okay? I like it. It's harmless. It's, you know, G-rated, except gluttony is not harm harmless. So imagine you have a vision of being a person who doesn't eat junk food, and you actually have the intention of becoming that person. The means for you might be things like this. I'm never going to have it in my pantry or my refrigerator because, let's face it, our desires are fickle. Our cravings come and go for food, for sex, for whatever. It comes and goes. And if you get a sudden craving for sugar and there are no M&Ms and you're looking at the syrup bottle, it's not that, that savory. And if you have to get in the car and drive to Publix to go get M&Ms, there's a good chance you're going to be able to withstand that, that, per, that current phase of desire. That's an example of building into your life means for things. So uh, for sexual purity in our church, to protect our people, we have a rule of two adults to one kid so that there's never one adult alone with one other student. That's to... That's a means for purity. It's annoying because it's sometimes hard to have two leaders for one kid and it changes the ratios and stuff, but it's so important because we care enough that we want holiness. So we're putting in place a means to allow us to fulfill the vision God has given us. Now, if I could be more explicit, if you have a problem with pornography, a means to get over it would be to maybe not pay the Comcast bill. Don't have internet at your house. That could solve it. Now, it's highly inconvenient, and it messes up a bunch of other things, but that's one thing. Or you could go to a support group, and there are those. You might not have control over desire, but you can have control over your schedule. And you can say, I'm going to go to 
that ministry living without lust, or I'm going to go to AA to handle alcohol, or I'm going to go to an eating disorders group. Those are the kind of means that you put in place. So eventually, it becomes normal to think, oh, I really want sugar. I know there's no junk food in my house. I'm not even going to go to the pantry and look. You start to grow into the habit. And we think we can't do it, but actually the, the truth is we can if we work the VIM pattern. So I want to encourage you to ask God's help in self-control and discipline and not be like the fool here who groans, oh, how I hated self-discipline, and at the end of his life realizes he's just given everything away and wasted his life. In the topic of sex, God gave sex to fulfill marriage and to symbolize Christ's love for us. May that be true in this congregation. May it be true for us. Now, we're going to sing a sermon response song about turning our eyes on Jesus because he's ultimately the one that we need. He is the one that can satisfy our ultimate desires. And so I want to pray first, though. Would you um, please bow, bow your heads with me? Lord, I am grateful for your word. I'm also thankful that um, it has things in here that make us blush because we need to hear them. And Lord, I pray for healing where we've not had boundaries in our life. I pray for purity and goodness. I pray for self-control. Would you help our church pursue your holy ways because they are so wise and good. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.